Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson, and on behalf of Dr. Ashley Best and the rest of the Bench Talk team, we want to thank you for tuning in today. This show is about bringing science to the people. We want the show to be a clearinghouse for the research that is important to all of us. So we've spent this week scouring the library stacks for research publications that are just too interesting to be ignored. Let's get started. Dr. Dave here again. I think communication is an interesting thing. I remember back in the fall of 2011 when the occupied Louisville encampment was taking place in downtown Louisville. I was so impressed with that. I loved the democratic way that the camp was run and how they communicated. Everyone got to speak if they wanted to. There were these different hand signals that people would make indicating their opinions or responses about one issue or another. It was really neat. Then, five or six years later, January 20th, 2017, I remember helping the Kentucky Alliance Against Racist and Political Repression put on their People's Inauguration. We held that in downtown Louisville in the exact same spot as the original Occupy Louisville encampment, and it was done at exactly the time of Agent Orange's inauguration in Washington, D.C., I remember the day before going out and purchasing this huge megaphone for this People's Inauguration event. I figured that with Donald Trump in the White House, we were going to need a really big megaphone. Well, combine these two things and you sort of have Ford Radio, you know? Progressive, grassroots, democratically run, providing a strong voice to the people. We provide a megaphone. It's a huge megaphone for the 99% of us who are expected to consume media and not actually make it ourselves. So here's what you need to do. Go to forwardradio.org. Go to that website and find our Indiegogo pledge page. We need to raise $10,000 to stay on the air another year. And you can help us reach that goal. Give what you can. Every little bit helps us achieve that goal. There's some pretty cool thank you gifts available for your pledge, so just check that out on the Indiegogo website. Consider becoming a sustaining donor at 5 or $10 or more per month. Choose the level that's right for you, of course, on the PayPal link at the bottom of the page at forwardradio.org, and your account could be automatically charged each month. It's really easy and painless, and you'd really be supporting something important. As you know, we don't play commercials on this channel, so we really need your support to keep us going. We don't waste money either. We're a lean, mean, efficient fighting machine. So go ahead to forwardradio.org right now and pledge. I'll wait. Go ahead, do it. I'm waiting. Waiting. Anyway, I know you'll do it. Thank you. Good news, weekend warriors. New research shows that those weekend sleep ends could help counteract your lack of sleep during the week. This study looked at the lifestyle and medical data of over 38,000 adults in Sweden starting in 1997. After accounting for factors such as physical activity, smoking, BMI, work hours, and gender, the data showed that those who had got less than five hours of sleep had a 65% higher mortality rate than those who got six to seven hours of sleep every day. However, for those individuals who only did get five hours of sleep at night, but received seven or eight hours of sleep during the weekend, didn't see a difference in the mortality rate. 
Interestingly, those that did sleep eight hours of more every day of the week actually had a 25% higher mortality rate compared to those who slept around six or seven hours a day. Now there is a limitation to this research. It's really hard to track the sleep data every day for 38,000 individuals. So the data collected is a snapshot of these individual sleep habits, which is enough to get an idea of what their sleep profile would look like long term. However, this does provide a better look at how varying sleep patterns can play a role on the health of an individual. Prior to this, we only knew that sleeping for a very long time in a very short time was not good for health and longevity. So if you just can't seem to catch enough sleep during the week, don't worry, those weekend sleep ends are paying off. Hey there, Dave Robinson here. You're probably already aware that WFMP Radio has their fundraising campaign this week. And in honor of that, I'd like to ask you a personal question. Do you ever feel lonely? Do you ever have feelings of loneliness? Do you ever feel isolated where you feel anxious about a lack of connection or communication with other people? If so, that's what loneliness is. Now, there's a lot of different things that can cause us to feel lonely at different times in our life. Depression, physical illness, or mental illness, alienation from people, troubles at our jobs, troubles with our families, or just anxiety about being around other people. There is a standardized test for loneliness if you want to assess yourself sometime. It was put together by some psychologists at University of California at L.A., and it's called the UCLA Loneliness Scale. It was first published in 1978, and apparently it's still one of the most commonly used ways that psychologists have for measuring loneliness in people. Well, you can easily calculate your own level of loneliness by filling out the questionnaire yourself. It's easy to find on the internet. Just search for UCLA Loneliness Scale. And when you get to it, it'll be a series of 20 multiple choice questions. And then you add up your score for your answers for each question. And it ends up giving you a final score of between 0 and 60. The higher the score, the more lonely you are. I just took the test in preparation for this radio show, and I got a score of 24 out of 60. It takes a score of 43 to be classified as lonely, so at least for today, I seem to be doing okay. So I only got a score of 24 today, but I know that in other points in my life, I bet that score fluctuates quite a bit. It's just going to depend on my mood any given day. But basically, I think I'm doing all right because I'm sort of a loner by nature anyway, so I don't really crave or require that much human interaction in my life. And then I'm lucky enough to have some cool people in my life to hang around with when I do want interaction. Cigna, the insurance company, just published a report on loneliness in the United States, and they report that 46% of Americans sometimes or always feel alone or left out they found that 40% of us sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful. Only about half of Americans are having meaningful in-person social interactions, like an extended conversation with a friend or spending quality time with family on a daily basis. Only half of us are having that on a daily basis. And surprisingly, they found that the loneliest generation right now is Generation Z, those are younger people between the ages of 18 and 22. 
They're the loneliest generation of all. Well, if you've been following this show at all, you know our MO, our modus operandi. We're here to tell you the latest research on various topics. And guess what? A researcher has just recently published a paper about a resource out there that's been found, and I'm quoting here, that reduces social isolation and enriches community cohesion. Oh my gosh, what is it? What is it that reduces people's loneliness and it helps bring the community together? What is it? It's community radio. This particular paper was published in October of 2017 in an issue of a journal called Radio Journal, International Studies in Broadcast and Audio Media. And this article focuses on community radio in Australia, but I believe it probably holds relevance to the United States as well. I think it probably applies to good old WFMP 106.5 FM forward radio right here in Louisville. This Australian paper is a meta-analysis where the author is examining more than 50 different publications by other researchers on this topic, and he's trying to summarize the results. And this meta-analysis finds three main areas where community broadcasting appears to be helping with what he calls social reconnection. Do you want to know the three ways that community radio helps? Well, the first way is by fostering more social connections. For instance, volunteer opportunities. I'm a volunteer here at WFMP, as are all the other broadcasters who live here in Kentuckiana. They're really a great group of people. I love being able to connect a voice that I hear on the radio with an actual person. And they've been really good about teaching me so much about broadcasting. These various Australian researchers reported that one of the top benefits of being involved in community radio is what they call the joy of social connection. And I feel it all the time. Now, I have to admit, at the moment, Ford Radio doesn't really have much of an organized program for recruiting and utilizing volunteers right now. I wish we did. I just think we need the right people to step in and work on that. Most of the volunteer work right now at Ford Radio is being done by the various hosts you hear on the numerous shows that are broadcast on on our station. But I wish we had volunteers to help get the word out, for instance, about how great and awesome WFMP is. But I can tell you that we are always looking for new broadcasters, people who have something to say to our community. And I can also tell you from personal experience, it's a blast. It's really fun. Some of the benefits of volunteering at a community radio station like ours were reported to be improvement in expressing ideas. It makes you more confident at speaking out, thinking more critically about the media, feeling better about themselves, and taking on responsibility. The phrases that radio volunteers used a lot had to do with a greater sense of purpose and making a difference in the community, and that is so true in my own experience. Another way that community radio stations in Australia were promoting social connections, and again, I think it applies here too, it was by broadcasting large amounts of community service announcements, and community event calendars, and interviews, things like that. In Australia, they determined that the average community radio station was broadcasting information for 52 individuals or community organizations per week. The second answer to that question of how do community radio stations in Australia fight social isolation has to do with promoting ethnic diversity. 
Apparently, the Australian public thinks that mainstream media doesn't inform, enlighten, question, and imagine audiences from diverse ethnic backgrounds. And that's certainly true here in the United States, too, I think. The paper found that community radio stations helped address that deficiency by either establishing entire community radio stations for specific ethnic groups or by broadcasting specific radio shows in the language of specific immigrant communities, for instance. So Forward Radio is certainly doing this with our all-Spanish shows. And I also think that our syndicated shows like Democracy Now! do a better job of presenting an international perspective or presenting minority viewpoints in a manner and in a quantity that you just don't get from mainstream media. There is another way that community radio stations can help refugees who have recently arrived and who are dealing with the trauma and emotional disturbances stemming from their earlier life or from the challenges of relocation. It's music. I'm pretty impressed with the wide variety of international music I hear on Ford Radio every week, and I'm hoping to hear even more of that in the future. The third way that these researchers reported that community radio can help fight social isolation is by providing a worthwhile source of communication with people who would otherwise be shut out. Like folks who are stuck at home due to illness, poverty, family, old age, etc., we can provide relevant information and entertainment to the homebound or those in nursing homes or hospitals. They also mention artists and musicians who sometimes feel like they are working in a vacuum. Maybe they can't get recognized by mainstream media. Maybe they feel disconnected. Well, community-run radio helps artists and musicians bring their work to a wider audience. I love the way Forward Radio gives local artists and musicians that opportunity, the voice, to show us their creative work. These researchers found that this gave a new hope and confidence to the artist community. Community radio can also give voice to groups that might be feeling isolated due to their personal stories, beliefs, or opinions. Maybe it's a group of college student protesters or civil rights activists or feminists or transgender activists who would otherwise feel disenfranchised, disconnected, marginalized, or downright dissed by mainstream media. Community-run radio, like Forward Radio, can and does help give them a voice, too. This Australian paper discusses the specific case of the vision impaired. People who are blind can't use computers or smartphones or television to keep up with the world. Radio is an invaluable way of keeping abreast of world happenings. And then there's the problem of illiteracy. Something like 14% of adults in Kentucky actually cannot read adequately they could really benefit from a good community radio station like Forward Radio. In the conclusion of this paper, the author states, and I'm quoting, The vital importance of community broadcasting in Australia should not be undervalued as a medium that can ameliorate social isolation and support community cohesion. The joy of social connection articulated by community radio volunteers and listeners is palpable in studies highlighted in this article. For listeners and volunteers alike, community radio allows association with ideas, music, culture, arts, language, current affairs, 
ethnicity, sexuality, and even a sense of family, which are not available via mainstream culture, unquote. Here, here, I hope you come to the same conclusion about forward radio as these researchers in Australia did. Leave your sense of isolation behind you and promote this radio station to your family, your friends, your neighbors, and join us in bringing a progressive, loving, educational radio alternative to Louisville. Be sure to donate to WFMP-FM Forward Radio. You won't be alone anymore. Thank you. Scott Miller of Bench Talk here. Bench Talk provides a way for topics related to science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to be brought to listeners like you. We are all volunteers and simply love our fields and the opportunity to share that with you. Forward Radio provides us with that opportunity to reach out to you. I'm asking that you support them and us during their fundraising drive. Thank you for contributing to Forward Radio's pledge drive. As a lifelong science fiction fan, I've always been intrigued by robots. So I just had to read this article published in the February 21, 2018 issue of the journal Science Robotics. This article concerns what the robots seen in Star Wars movies can tell us about real robots. The article starts off with the brief history of Hollywood robots. They mentioned the movie Metropolis, which was released in 1927. That movie featured a robot called Maria. There was Gort in the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, which came out in 1951. And there's Robbie the Robot in the movie Forbidden Planet that came out in 1956. As a baby boomer myself, I certainly remember the 60s television show called Lost in Space. They featured a robot that was simply called Robot. Now, all of these early Hollywood robots have one thing in common. They all were human-like in shape. They had two arms and two legs and a head. And mostly this was because there was literally a human actor inside of the robot. In 1972, the movie Silent Running came out, and Silent Running was about this large spaceship that was basically this giant greenhouse, and it contained the last surviving plants from Earth. And there were these three robots who acted as gardeners, and the robots' names were Huey, Dewey, and Louie. What was different about Silent Running was they portrayed robots in a different way than had been done earlier. Although these robots, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, were humanoid in shape, what made them different was that their purpose on the spacecraft was to physically do work. They were gardeners. So rather than just providing information or making calculations like other Hollywood robots, these were actually working. And another difference between the silent running robots is that each of the three robots had different personalities. And they were actually quite adorable. And then the movie Star Wars came out in 1977 with its robots. This was the first movie that showed a non-anthropomorphic robot. It was R2-D2. R2-D2 was the shorter, rolling, non-speaking robot that kind of looked like a cross between a city trash receptacle and a fire hydrant. The other robot on Star Wars was C-3PO, which was a tall, humanoid robot. It spoke multiple languages. This movie represents the first time where the robots in the film were actually essential characters to the film. The plot would have been completely different without these robots. 
These two robots in Star Wars, R2-D2 and C-3PO, were actually based on human characters from a movie made by Akira Kurosawa called The Hidden Fortress, released in Japan back in 1958. The Hidden Fortress was set in Japan, and it featured these two characters, and to quote from this research article I'm reviewing for you, this movie featured a pair of bumbling peasants, one tall, skinny, and talkative, the other short, round, and pragmatic. Sound familiar? They stumble upon a spunky, headstrong woman being escorted by a reluctant samurai. That certainly sounds like our two Star Wars robots, R2-D2 and C-3PO. The author of the paper I'm discussing today is a professor of computer science at Texas A&M University, and she asked the question, are the robots we see in the Star Wars movies feasible? One interesting feature on the R2-D2 robot and also seen on the BB-8 robot that's featured in the more recent Star Wars movies is that they communicate non-verbally with humans. So the robots make various beeping sounds and whistles and things like that to get the message across. The humans in the film, like Luke Skywalker, they appear to understand these noises. Somehow they're able to interpret what all these sounds are from R2-D2. It's never really explained, though. Well, this type of communication is called non-linguistic utterances. The other term in the literature is semantic-free utterance. And if you've ever seen a Star Wars movie, you know that the audience can understand some of these utterances, like when the robot is surprised, or wants attention, or warning the other characters, or agreeing with the other characters, or showing disapproval or frustration. I'm interpreting here, but I think what the author of this paper I'm reviewing is saying is that if we see robots on the job or in our home in the future, they might actually be communicating with us in the same way that R2-D2 and BB-8 do, with beeps and whistles rather than in the English language. After all, that way, speakers of all languages from around the world would be able to interpret these sounds. Or perhaps there's some sort of interpretation device that we would all wear so that we could communicate with our personal robots and other people couldn't. After all, if you did have a personal robot and you were out in public, you might not want other people to communicate with it, just you. The author doesn't state this implicitly, but I'm sort of interpreting what she's saying. Another thing that this paper discusses is the ridiculous way that the spherical BB-8 robot moves in the more recent Star Wars films. BB-8 moves really fast across rough ground, even soft sand. It can pivot in different directions. BB-8 has a head, but it gets unattached, but then it can somehow reattach. It's pretty hard to believe, actually. And so the author of this paper also asks, how does BB-8 move so quickly over soft sand? Most animals here on our planet move across sand with their legs, like crabs or lizards. They might jump like a frog or a cricket. They might slither like a snake. So the author thinks the way BB-8 moves is, is really not realistic. So the author of this paper, who is into robotics research, basically concludes that we probably won't see robots like R2-D2 or BB-8 helping us out in the near future. This article might have been a little bit frivolous, but as a Star Wars fan, I just couldn't resist. I like how she finished her article, however. So she starts out saying, ah, well, the Star Wars robots aren't something we're going to see in the future. 
but she points out that there's a real robot currently being used by NASA on the International Space Station. It's called the Robonaut, and it's been on the space station since 2011. You can go online and see what Robonaut looks like, but I can tell you this. It sort of looks like those two musicians from France that show up on the Grammy Awards show. Their name is Daft Punk. The Robonaut sort of looks like Daft Punk, just with smaller hands. Anyway, Robonaut was developed by NASA and General Motors. It is humanoid in shape. It looks like Daft Punk, after all. It's designed to go places on the station that are too dangerous for people, like outside the station. It's got two hands for its manual dexterity, although the hands are a little small, but that's to get into smaller spaces. And it's also going to have the ability to carry out numerous repetitive tasks that a human might not be able to do. It's elastic. It has extended joints, allows it to reach places that humans can't reach easily, and it can contain sensors and cameras to quickly adapt to changing microenvironments. Robonaut is still in its test phase. They're now on Generation 2 Robonaut. They call it R2, ironically. And they're testing it on the ground, but also in the air to see if it's feasible, see how well it works. And as far as I know, it has not actually been utilized to carry out a task on the space station yet. But R2 is on the space station, and NASA has recently announced that it's going to bring it back to Earth sometime this year for repairs and upgrades, and then they're going to send it back up to the space station again. So Hollywood's not making all of the space robots out there. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Bench Talk. Did you know that donating $20 can help run this station for a full day? You can go right now to forwardradio.org and pledge a $20 donation to help keep us on the air. Our goal is to raise $10,000 to help fund this radio station for the next year. During this pledge drive, you can select from a variety of great thank you gifts for your pledge. Consider becoming a sustaining donor at 5 10 or more per month. Choose a level that's right for you using the PayPal link at the bottom of the page at forwardradio.org. Your annual total makes you eligible for the same gifts as those one-time donators, and we'll follow you up with that information. Consider continuing to support Grassroots Community Radio. Thank you. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Don't leave it all up to the lab rats. Go out and be a citizen scientist. Science empowers all of us. If you want to read any of the research articles we've discussed today, links can be found on Bench Talk's webpage at forwardradio.org. 